Please turn in your Bibles with me to 1 Corinthians 7. 1 Corinthians 7. And we'll begin in verse 17. 1 Corinthians 7, verse 17. And as you're turning there, I want to tell you about a story. Um, a story about a little girl. She lived in a house next to a garden. And in this garden, it was uh, something that she would walk by every day. But one day as she's walking through this, this garden, she sees this flower catch her eye. Um, and then she goes up to the flower and she smells it. And she says, it smells so beautiful. And it looks so great. And just everything about it is so wonderful. But then as she looks at the surroundings of that flower, she goes, I'm a little disappointed though. I'm a little bit sad because it's in this dirty pond. It's, it's growing in this, this filthy place. So she quickly comes up with this idea that I'm going to remove that flower. I, I'm going to take it away and I'll put it into my own garden back home next door. So she goes into the pond and she uproots the flower and she dusts off all the dirt and gets water so it's all cleaned off. And then she goes to her own garden and she plants that in. And shortly after that, the plant withers away and it dies. And even though that girl had a beautiful home and her garden was wonderful, the environment wasn't meant for that flower. The flower could only survive in that muddy pond where it was placed. Only there could it get the direct sunlight it needed. And only there would it grow. And even though the girl meant well, the flower did not thrive in her home. And when the gardener of the park came and, and saw what she had done, he said, Why did you destroy one of my most beautiful flowers? It cannot thrive where you placed it. And the girl says, Well, I'm sorry, I didn't know that. I, just, I didn't like it in that muddy pond. It didn't seem like it fit there. It seemed like a flower of that beauty didn't belong in such an ugly place. And the gardener said, I specifically placed it there because I knew that only there could it grow to become a beautiful flower. And to me, this story, it speaks of contentment. And the reason being is that the girl, she saw that flower and she saw it in its natural habitat. And all she could think about while seeing it there was that it needs to be moved somewhere else. It has to go somewhere else. And even though that flower had all the nutrients, the, the minerals, the sunlight it needed, the little girl thought differently. She thought she knew better. She thought that no matter what, uh, no matter how well it does there, I'm not going to be content until it moves somewhere else where I think it should be better placed. And ultimately the plant did die off. And there's many times when we may feel discontent with where the Lord's placed us. Times when we want to change our situations, our circumstances, the surroundings that we're in. And we feel like we want to be moved somewhere else. And yet the Lord has purposely placed us where we're at for a specific reason. In order for us to grow there, he knows that only there will we thrive. And sometimes new believers, or even believers who have been uh, saved for many years, they think to themselves that I have to break away from everything that I once knew. I have to break away from my former life, including things like my career, my marriage, and things that are not even in themselves sinful, like we talked about last week. Just because we're saved, it doesn't mean that we need to abandon everything that we once formerly knew. In 1 Corinthians 7.15 that we talked about last week, it's clear that God's called us to peace. So in general, being a Christian doesn't involve this violent severing of everything that you once knew. In our passage today, it talks about new believers in Corinth. They had questions about wanting to make radical changes and wanting to completely abandon everything of their former lives. 
So let's look at our passage today. It's 1 Corinthians 7, verse 17. It says, But as God has distributed to each one, as the Lord has called each one, so let him walk. And so I ordain in all the churches. Was anyone called while circumcised? Let him not become uncircumcised. Was anyone called while uncircumcised? Let him not be circumcised. Circumcision is nothing, and uncircumcision is nothing. But keeping the commandments of God is what matters. Let each one remain in the same calling in which he was called. Were you called while a slave? Do not be concerned about it. But if you can be made free, rather use it. For he who was called in the Lord while a slave is the Lord's freedman. Likewise, he who was called while free is Christ's slave. You were bought at a price. Do not become slaves of men. Brethren, let each one remain with God in the state in which he was called. So imagine yourself in the, the shoes of the Corinthians. You're a new believer in Christ, and you have all these questions because you're genuinely interested in what living a Christian life looks like. This whole idea of the church and God's plan for the church is a completely revolutionary idea to you. You've never heard anything like this. This is the first time you've heard it. And Paul's beginning to answer a lot of the questions that they had and explaining what God expects of your life. And one of the first topics that we discussed last week in this chapter was the principles of marriage and the marriage vows. And then he goes on before, uh, past that and talks about what to do if in a marriage one person becomes a believer and there remains an unbeliever in that relationship. And his overarching idea throughout that passage is that the believer should remain with the unbeliever. So that ultimately the, un the unbelieving spouse may be won over to the Lord. He reminds him to stay put in that situation because he has a purpose for it. That not only just the husband, also the children may also be uh, saved as well. And although this section today that we're reading may seem like a completely separate idea, although it may seem like it's an entirely different uh, topic altogether, it's actually just a continuation of the same idea. The first word in the section, but, it tells us that there's a connecting idea between these two verses. So on Paul initially, he's referring to the marriage bond, but as the passage goes on, it also applies to our racial and our social ties as well. You see, Jews at this time... I mean, could you imagine? They're getting saved left and right. Uh, people are being brought to the church. Jews are being saved and becoming part of the church, and so were Gentiles. And there's clearly these cultural differences between the two of them. And they had questions that had to be answered. And the Jews were asking, well, if I'm a Jew and I got saved, does that mean I have to give up my Jewish heritage? And the Gentiles were asking, well, now that I'm a Gentile who's a Christian, do I need to embrace the Jewish heritage and become a Jew? And on top of that, there was false doctrines being teached that now if you're a Gentile, you need to become like a Jew. You need to be circumcised to show that you truly are converted to Christ. And that you need to also not only do that, but embrace Judaism as well. Which is basically like saying that you need to be under the law all over again. So what, what is the right answer then? Well, Paul's answer is very clear. Saying neither of these things matter. Whether you've come from a Jewish background, or whether you've come from a Gentile background, it makes no difference. The fact is that God has done something completely new in the church. Gentiles and Jews are now accepted on the same basis. When a person trusts in Christ, he becomes part of the church, and there is no social or racial divisions. 
And the Lord, he saves you where you're at. If you've come from a Jewish background, you're now a Jewish Christian. And if you've come from a Gentile background, you are now a Gentile Christian. And the important thing is not whether you're a Jew or whether you're a Gentile. The important thing is whether or not you're a Christian. That's ultimately what really matters. But you may find yourselves, as a Jewish Christian, having a better opportunity to witness to your Jewish relatives or your Jewish friends. And in the same manner, you may have a stronger voice as a Gentile Christian, reaching out to your family and friends who are also Gentiles. And in the same manner, like we talked about last week, if you're a married spouse to an unsaved spouse, you now have a voice that wouldn't be there otherwise. So whatever condition you're called in, whichever condition God saves you in, God can effectively use you in that condition. You don't need to be seeking to be removed or or change the position that God's called you in. He has you right where he wants you and he can use you right there. So let's look more carefully at verse 17, at what Paul is saying. He says again, but as God has distributed each one, as the Lord has called each one, so let him walk. And so I ordained in all the churches. So like we were saying, it's referring to marriage initially. And Paul is saying, you know, whether you've been called to a life of marriage or a life of singleness, you should walk in the calling that God has given you. If you're married to an unsaved wife, you don't need to abandon your marriage or your marriage vows. In the same way, for a wife who is now saved and she has an unsaved husband, you don't need to abandon him. Use the situation in which you're placed in to point others and your spouses to Christ, that they may be saved as well. And Paul is saying that since you've been saved in your present condition, use whatever you have to serve the Lord. Live to glorify God in your current condition. Think about it. I mean, you've been saved, and think about everyone who was involved with your conversion to Christ, the people you had contact with, the events that you went to, um, relatives, just everyone around you, that sphere of friends and connections you had, all the events that God perfectly orchestrated, the factors in your life to lead up to your salvation. All this was predetermined by God so that when the conversion finally took place and you finally became a Christian, God could have everything you needed so that you're fully equipped to serve Him where you're at. So this idea that people want to have is to sever all these ties with all these people because now I'm a Christian, I shouldn't be associated with this, makes no sense at all because God's allowed all those things to happen for a reason so that you may be used where you're at. And obviously, if it's a sinful thing that you've been involved with before, that should be forsaken. But here Paul is talking about things that are not in and of themselves sinful. He's telling you to seek to use how to minister to those circle of friends and see what God will do through those circumstances. He says uh, at the end of this verse, And so I ordained in all the churches. So Paul's teaching to the, gen- to the uh, church of Corinth, but it's not just uh, to the church only, it's to all the churches he's gone to. It's a universal message that he's been preaching. So therefore it applies to us as well in Fremont, Calvary Bible Chapel. This message also applies to us. However, it doesn't mean that a new believer who was a thief before conversion uh, should remain in that lifestyle. In fact, John 8 tells us very clearly about the woman who was caught in adultery. And when the accusers leave her one by one, Jesus is left alone with her and he says to her, go and sin no more. It's God's plan for a sinner to leave their sinful lifestyle, to forsake their old ways and follow him. 
So a new believer would be expected to leave that behind. But also the passage, like I said again, it's not, revealing, it's not talking about sinful things, but more things that we were involved with before that are not sinful. The social ties, the racial ties. And first Paul goes into this topic of circumcision, which has to do with our racial ties. He says in verse 18, Was anyone called while circumcised? Let him not become uncircumcised. Was anyone called while uncircumcised? Let him not become circumcised. Circumcision is nothing and uncircumcision is nothing. But keeping the commandments of God is what matters. So the Corinthians had trouble in their mind. They said to themselves, well, if I was a Jew before and I was circumcised before I trusted Christ, then as a Jew, should I try to rid myself of the physical signs that I'm a Jew now that I'm a Christian? And the Gentiles who were not circumcised would begin asking themselves, well, now that you know, I haven't been circumcised, should I now become circumcised to show that I am now a follower of Christ? And let's remind ourselves what circumcision is. So circumcision, it was a symbol of God's covenant with the Jews. And it was right for a Jewish parent to circumcise their male child on the eighth day. Circumcision goes back as far as Abraham's time. In Genesis 17, we see that God made a covenant with Abraham and he promised that he would multiply his descendants exceedingly and that the sign of the covenant with the Lord would be through circumcision. We read about it in Genesis 7. It says, And God said to Abraham, As for you, you shall keep my covenant, you and your descendants, after you through their generations. This is my covenant which you shall keep. Between me and your descendants after you, every male child among you shall be circumcised. And you shall be circumcised in the flesh of your foreskins, and it shall be a sign of the covenant between me and you. He who is eight days old among you shall be circumcised, every male child in your generation, who is born in your house or bought with money from a foreigner who is not your descendant. He who is born in your house and he who is bought with money shall be, must be circumcised, and my covenant be, shall be in your flesh for an everlasting covenant. And the uncircumcised male who is not circumcised in the flesh of his foreskin, that person shall be cut off from his people. He has broken my covenant. So God implements it here for the very first time in Abraham's life, back in Genesis 17. But he not only continues it with Abraham, he continues it with Moses as well. And we know that because Leviticus 12.3 tells us, again, talking, referring to Moses, saying, And on the eighth day, the flesh of the foreskin shall be circumcised. But the Lord went even farther than that. It also included not only just the Jews, but even Gentiles who wanted to be a part of Israel and keep the Passovers. We read about it in Exodus. It says, But every man's servant who is bought with money, when you have circumcised him, then he may eat. And when a stranger dwells with you and he wants to keep the Passover to the Lord, let all the males be circumcised and let them come near and keep it. And he shall be a native of the land, for no uncircumcised person shall eat it. So the Lord is very clear all throughout the Old Testament that circumcision is a sign of the covenant that he had with the Jewish people as well as any Gentiles who wanted to be a part of the Passover. But circumcision is more than just a covenant. It's more than just a symbol. It's ultimately a symbol of what has to already take place in the heart of a man. And we hear and we read clearly that circumcision has to show uh, in the heart of a man We'll read about it in Deuteronomy. Deuteronomy says, And now Israel, 
What does the Lord God require of you? But to fear the Lord your God and to walk in all his ways and to love him and to serve the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul and to keep the commandments of the Lord and his statutes, which I command you today for your good. That's what the Lord's interested in. He's interested in you keeping his commandments, serving him, loving him with all your heart and with all your soul. Indeed, heaven and the highest heavens belong to your, to the Lord your God. Also, the earth with all that is in it, the Lord delights only in your, in your fathers to love them, and he chose their descendants after them, you above all peoples, as it is this day. Therefore, circum the foreskin of your heart, and be stiff-necked no longer. You know, we can be physically circumcised, but our hearts can be far from God. So he's telling the nation of Israel to circumcise your hearts. Don't just circumcise yourselves. Circumcise your hearts. It goes beyond the circumcision of the flesh to the circumcision of your soul, to your attitudes, your relationship with God, that you might show through that that you love him. And he again stresses this idea again in Deuteronomy. And the Lord your God will circumcise your heart and the hearts of your descendants to love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul that you may live. However, the physical circumcision no longer holds the meaning that it once did. See, physical circumcision was a mere symbol of what Christ would do with all believers. And the reason we know that is because Colossians tells us plainly that in him you were also circumcised with the circumcision without hands by putting off the body of sins of the flesh by the circumcision of Christ, buried with him in baptism, in which you were also raised with him through faith in the working of God who raised him from the dead, and you being dead in your trespasses and the uncircumcision of your flesh, he has made alive together with him, having forgiven all your trespasses, having wiped away the handwriting of requirement that was against us, which was contrary to us, And he has taken it out of the way, having nailed it to the cross, having disarmed principalities and powers, he made a public spectacle of them, triumphing over them in it. You see, circumcision no longer holds the value that it once did, because it was foreshadowing what Christ would already do. And when you trusted in Christ, your circumcision was complete. You died to your sin, you were buried with him, and you were brought forth into newness of life. And now he's called you to serve him. So when the Corinthians, they bring up this idea of circumcision and whether or not to be circumcised, Paul tells them very plainly that circumcision, it's nothing. And uncircumcision, it's nothing. What matters more than anything else is whether or not you truly keep the commandments of the Lord. That's what matters more than anything else. But as a Jew, it would be revolutionary to hear these ideas that circumcision is nothing. And there would be tendencies to be, you know, extremists and saying, well, you know, if circumcision is nothing anymore, then, uh, you know, you not only do you not need to be circumcised, but if you're a Jew, you now need to become a Gentile. And on the contrary, Gentiles might say, well, if the Jews were God's chosen people and circumcision was a sign of uh, a special relationship with God, then therefore we must practice circumcision to enter into that special relationship And Paul's saying to all of them, no, absolutely not. God's not looking at the outward appearances. The real question is, what is the condition of your heart towards the Lord? The Lord tells us that man looks on the outward appearance, 
But God looks into the heart. Jeremiah tells us that I, the Lord, search the heart. I test the mind, even to give every man according to his ways, according to the fruit of his doings. The Lord is not looking on the outward appearances to see whether or not someone's been circumcised. But he's been calling us to circumcise our hearts by being obedient to his law. Romans continues with this idea that it's pointless to be circumcised unless you actually keep the law. He's saying that you can be circumcised and yet not keep the law, and to you it would be as uncircumcision. And to those who are uncircumcised, if they keep the law, it would be to them as being circumcised. And we see that plainly in Romans 2. He says in verse 25, For circumcision is indeed profitable if you keep the law. But if you're a breaker of the law, your circumcision has become uncircumcision. Therefore, if an uncircumcised man keeps the righteous requirements of the law, will not his uncircumcision be counted as circumcision? And will not the physically uncircumcised, if he fulfills the law, judge you, who even with your written code and circumcision are transgressors of the law? For he is not a Jew who is one outwardly, nor is circumcision that which is outward in the flesh. It doesn't matter whether or not you're circumcised or not. What matters is where your heart is. Are you serving the Lord? Are you keeping His commandments? Is your heart circumcised? So Paul goes on in the passage in verse 20. He says, Let each one remain in the calling in which he was called. Were you called while a slave? Do not be concerned about it. But if you can be made free, rather use it. Again, Paul is saying to the Corinthians, remain in the state in which God has called you. Paul uses an illustration to further this idea through slavery. You see, circumcision had to do with the religious status or the racial ties, but the slavery dealt more with a social status. Like circumcision, slavery is merely just an outward earthly condition, and it's totally irrelevant to one's spiritual standing before the Lord. So if you're a slave at the time of your conversion, it's not that something that you can be concerned about and that you spend countless hours and energy trying to fix that situation. However, Paul says that if it's possible to be made free, then it would be better to be free because that would allow you for more opportunities to be a witness or to be a ministry. But overall, the idea is that it doesn't matter whether you're, whether you're in slavery or not. Overall, the idea is that whether you're a slave man, whether you're a slave or you're a free man, you're not to be concerned with your status because God can still use you wherever you're at. You think of Joseph. We talked about him all day, uh, or all hour, last hour, and about how he was sold into slavery at 17 years old by his very own brothers, and he had no choice in the matter. And yet, he spent the majority of his life in Egypt, where he effectively served not only his masters there, but the Lord. There was only actually one recorded time where he actually attempted to gain his freedom. And it was after he interpreted the dream of a butler. And the butler was supposed to remind Pharaoh of him when he was finally released from prison. And however, the butler quickly forgot about what Joseph had told him. And Joseph remained incarcerated for a time after that. However, had Joseph been concerned and consumed about trying to be free, he would not be as effective as he was in jail where he was. Ultimately, God did elevate him, though, and he made him second in command to Pharaoh. And the Lord used him there, and he was effective for him. 
And he was able ultimately to, to save the people during that famine, as we talked about in the morning. But Joseph learned while in his time in Egypt that whether or not he was in prison or in a palace, he would worship the God where he was. And at the end of it all, he could say that God had a purpose for it all. And when his brothers finally saw him again, he says in Genesis 50:20, "But as for you, you meant evil against me, but God meant it for good, in order to bring about as it is this day to save many people alive. Now therefore, do not be afraid. I will provide for you and your little ones, and be comforted." And he comforted them and spoke kindly to them. He's a prime example of not being concerned and not being consumed about your social status, but rather use that opportunity wherever you're placed to serve the Lord. In verse 22, he says, For he who is called in the Lord while a slave is the Lord's freedman. Likewise, he who is called while free is Christ's slave. You were bought at a price. Do not become slaves of men. So Paul tells the Corinthians that if Christ saved you while a slave, now you're the Lord's freedman. You've been set from the, the, the penalty of your sins, your transgressions, your bondage to Satan, all of that. You've been free from that. You're no longer in chains to it all because Christ has set you free. And also the salvation that he's provided has set you free as well. And on the other hand, if you've been freed at the time of your salvation, then now you are a slave to Christ. He plainly tells us in Romans that for when you were a slave to sin, you were free in regard to righteousness. But what fruit did you have from the things in which you are now ashamed? For the end of those things is death. So while you were free from the Lord, you were ultimately a slave to sin. You didn't realize it. But sin had a, a grasping hand on you. And now as a Christian, you can look back and be ashamed of, why was, I, why was I even associated with that? And ultimately, the Lord says that those things led to death. But now, he's saying, but now having been set free from sin and having become slaves of God, you have fruit to holiness and the end everlasting life. So now that you've trusted in the Lord Jesus Christ, you're no longer a slave to sin. You are a slave to Christ. And he offers you a fruit to holiness and everlasting life. What more could you want? No longer is your, your end result death. No longer do you have to spend eternal punishment in hell for the things that you've done. Christ offers you eternal life. And in case that wasn't clear enough, he tells us in verse 23, probably the most commonly used one for evangelism, that... For the wages of sin is death, but the gift of God is eternal life in Christ Jesus our Lord. The wages that we were earning for our sins was death. We were living a life aside from God, not knowing that we were enslaved to our sins. And now as slaves with Christ, we've been given eternal life. How wonderful is that? And he tells us in verse 23 that we're bought at a price and that we're not to become slaves to men. And he reminds us of the price that he paid in 1 Peter. He said that you were not redeemed with corruptible things like silver or gold from your aimless conduct received by the traditions from your father, but with the precious blood of Christ as a lamb without blemish and without spot. You realize that your redemption was not cheap. It was not easy. 
Jesus Christ left heaven. He left the fellowship with His Father to come down to this earth in the most humble manner possible. He took on a servant's role and did things such as washing His disciples' feet. He associated with the lowliest of people and people even mocked Him for it, saying that you associate with tax collectors and sinners. And yet that's what He wanted to. He made Himself of no reputation while on this earth. And at the end of His whole ministry, He dies what is arguably one of the most gruesome and agonizing deaths on the cross, where He ultimately finished the work which He came here to do. It was the very blood of Jesus Christ that set you free from the debt of sin that you owed. You've been bought with a price, brothers and sisters. So why should you be a slave to anyone else but Christ who purchased you with His very own blood? It says in Christ, there's both freedmen and slave have been freed from sin and therefore they're all equal. Now there's some Christian Jews or even um, who would feel and even teach that somehow there are there's levels of Christianness where there's Gentile Christians who are here, but Jews were God's chosen people, so somehow they would be higher up. But the thing, it couldn't be farther from the truth. Gentiles are not somehow second-rate Christians because the Jews were God's chosen people. In Christ, we are all the same. In Galatians, Paul puts an end to this conversation, and he says, There is neither Jew nor Gentile. There is neither slave nor free. There is neither male nor female, for you are all one in Christ Jesus. Now, it's not to say that distinctions have been completely done away with in Christ. There are still distinctions between slaves and freedmen, men and women, Jews and Greeks, but no matter where you've come from, no matter what you are, in Christ, each one of us has the same standing before God. All people, no matter who they are, no matter what status in life they have, they're all sinners deserving condemnation for their sin. But all people who have trusted in Christ, no matter where they're at in their status in life, they can enjoy the same standing with God. We've all been clothed in the righteousness of Christ. We are all one in Jesus Christ. We've all been saved from our sins and the penalty of it. We've all been forgiven of our sins. We've all been made righteous. We've all been accepted in the beloved. We've all gained access to eternal life, to be with our Savior forever. So whether you're circumcised or not, whether you're male or you're female, whether you're a student or employed, whether you're a welder or an accountant, whether you're a physical therapist or a nurse, whether you're working for a corporation or whether you're self-employed, whether you're married or single, whether you're rich or poor, serve God where He's called you. We all have the same standing, but we all have a unique opportunity to serve God right where He's placed us. And we can be effective there, right where He's called us. And Paul wraps up this section in verse 24 by simply saying, Brethren, let each one remain in God, let each one remain with God in the state in which he was called. And although this passage doesn't talk about this word, there's a main idea that's traveling through these verses. And it's the idea of contentment. Being content with where God has placed you. If you think about the little girl in that illustration I provided earlier, she was discontent about that flower. She thought, God, you put it in the wrong place. It's not where it belongs. It would do so much better elsewhere. It doesn't look like a beautiful flower belongs in a murky pond. 
And so she removed it and extracted it and ultimately it withered away. But little did she know that if she was just content and left it there, it would have thrived and it would have continued to have been a beautiful flower. Be content where God's placed you. He has you there for a reason. In Philippians 4, Paul says again, Not that I speak in regard to need, for I have learned that in whatever state I am to be content. Paul learned from very early on that no matter what, he, what state God had him called in, whether it be shipwreck, whether it be through various trials, he was going to be content. Whether it be in jail, didn't matter. He would be content with where God had him. Now, contentment in where we are, it doesn't mean that God isn't able to elevate or change our status currently. It merely means that in wherever he's called us, we are to, whether it's to stay put or whether he's called us to move somewhere else, we're to be content in the place where God's currently called us. You think back to Joseph. Only one time did he make that effort to gain his freedom. And when that attempt didn't work, Joseph remained content in where he was placed. But ultimately, through serving, the God, serving God through where he was, the Lord elevated him to a place of second in command. And yet still, at that place, God, uh, Joseph was content with where God had him, and he served God with his full heart. And maybe you're today looking at your life, and you feel a lack of contentment with where you're at. Maybe someone's told you that, you know, you should be leaving your job. You need to be leaving you know, your um, schooling, you need to leave all those things that you once were associated with, and you need to now go into full-time ministry. You need to abandon all these things. These are all the things were before you got saved, and you need to now move on to something else, like Bible college or full-time ministry. And it's not to say that the Lord can't allow you to be involved in those things. Some he calls to missions out of state or even out of country, but the Lord will make those situations clear to you, whether or not he wants you there. But to be continually concerned and overwhelmed by having thoughts that I need to be moved somewhere else, I don't think this is where God wants me, really shows that you have a lack of contentment with where God has placed you. That you're not happy with where God's called you already. The Lord's brought you to the saving knowledge of himself. He's orchestrated all these events around your life to ensure that you had this connection of people, that when you're saved, you're fully equipped to be, a, to be a light and a witness to all those people around you. And now he wants to use you. And it doesn't matter your social status, your outward appearance. He will use you right where he's placed you. But he's more concerned, more than anything else, that you keep his commandments in light of all that he's done for you. Brothers and sisters, be content with where the Lord has placed you. And if you're here today and you've never trusted the Lord Jesus Christ, and this is the first time you've heard this, or maybe you've heard it a hundred times and yet you still haven't made the choice to trust in the Lord as your Savior, the message is very simple. You are a sinner deserving of the punishment for your sins. You've been enslaved to sin, whether you realize it or not. You're a slave to your sin. And there's really nothing that you can do in and of yourself to save yourself. However, Jesus Christ, he came down to this earth in the most humble manner to pay for your sins so that you didn't have to. You no longer have to be a slave to sin. You can be set free from the bondage of your sin, your slavery, and the eternal punishment for your sins. And it doesn't matter your past. It doesn't matter your occupation. It doesn't matter your social status. It doesn't matter your outward appearance. 
or anything of that nature. Jesus Christ took away your sins and he's simply asking you to put your faith in him and receive that free gift of salvation that he offers. He's asking you to no longer be a slave to sin, no longer be chained and be bound to it, but rather be a slave to Christ. Accept that gift of eternal life. And in light of the price that Jesus Christ paid in order to save your soul, will you make the choice today to trust in him and enjoy the abundant life that he offers you? Let's pray. Dear Lord Jesus, I just thank you for your word and the the truths that we can learn from it. Lord, I pray that we'd realize that outward appearances, circumcision and uncircumcision does not matter. What matters more than anything else is that we keep your commandments. And Lord, you're looking for us to keep your, keep, your, uh, keep your commandments. You're looking for us to keep your law, to serve you where we've been called, to be content with where you've placed us. Lord, I pray that we would be content. I pray that we'd use the situation in which you've placed us to serve you and that we would be effective ministering for you there. And I pray, Lord, for anyone who has not trusted in you. Lord, I pray that they would no longer be slaves to sin, but they would be slaves to you and receive that eternal life that you offer that free gift, Lord. I pray that you would work in their lives today, convicting them of the truths in your word. And I pray that today would be the day of salvation for them. Lord God, I pray all these things in your name. Amen.